This is the Making a Difference for Us podcast, and I'm your host, Margo. Welcome to those joining us for the first time, and welcome back to all others. Today's episode on immigration marks our first episode of Season 2, and I'm joined by Christine, Edwin, Kevin, Jim, and a special guest, Mace. As always, I'm going to let Mace introduce herself before we jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. My name is Mace Moran. I am a licensed attorney to practice in Michigan. Um, I worked in immigration uh, for about five years. I first started um, doing family-based, and then I transitioned to employment-based immigration. Um, I took a little break and worked in insurance defense, uh, but I recently returned back to employment-based immigration. So a lot of my experience in the legal industry has been handling um, a variety of immigration cases, but for the employment sector. And I am actively involved in like the Women Lawyers Association, although I don't know how prevalent that is. You guys care about that. But yeah, so that's uh, my experience and I'm here to talk about it. Thank you, Mace and Jim, to start us out. Could you give us your thoughts on today's questions, which are, what are the restrictions? What are we doing about immigration? And something to consider in your response would be, how is it impacting our economy? Please try to focus on all ethnicities instead of singling out one. Sure thing, Margo. Thank you. I'm going to break one rule up front. I am going to focus on a couple of ethnicities, and those are my own. Uh, we are a nation of immigrants, and that's my background. My great-grandparents uh, immigrated from Poland in the late 1800s. My grandparents on my mother's side immigrated from Ireland in the early 1900s. And so I'm a supporter of immigration, but I'm also a supporter of immigration laws. So to the point of what restrictions, we have those restrictions spelled out in the US laws and we should be enforcing them. Unfortunately, right now we're not. The southern border is open and that is entirely a political move by the current administration. Um, if there's anything you know, to me that represents an impeachable offense, that's it, the refusal to, to uh, enforce our laws. So I can listen to arguments that say we should have greater Immigration, I think there's a great point to be made, particularly in my area, manufacturing, where we struggle to have the workers we need. But again, that should be done in the realm of how we make laws in this society, legislation, passing it, all agreeing to it, and then enforcing it. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And Christine, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. Thanks, Margo. What Jim said is true. We are a nation of immigrants. And I think it's foolish of us to not consider different ways in welcoming immigrants to the U.S. Um, we do have immigration laws, which are listed elsewhere. We don't need to review all of those in this instance, but I don't think they're as welcoming as they could be. 17% of our American workforce are immigrants, and a lot of those jobs tend to reside in education, healthcare, and social services. Um, this isn't a blanket statement, but there are many obstacles with how families are treated when they're welcomed into the U.S. Um, or not welcomed into the U.S. And I think that the way that we have been handling them the last few years, um, knowing that some of those have shifted in the past year, um, the way that our country has handled them has just induced more trauma to those families and folks who are either seeking asylum or just seeking a, a different way of life. And if and when those those immigrants do become US citizens, they're carrying that trauma with them. And those are the people that are going to be working in our 
um, at least 17% of them, uh, education and healthcare and social services. I don't think that's sending a very welcoming and clear message that we, we're embracing you. Um, and we hope that maybe you could join our workforce, but first you have to jump through um, some hoops, which I think there, there's a need for some laws in place, so we're all on the same page. But when it comes to families in particular, I don't think that they are supported in the transition as best as they could be. And I think that in the long run is going to hurt our economy. Um, our working age population is going to be getting smaller and smaller because our population is decreasing. And if we don't sort out a different way to welcome immigrants um, when they come to the US, then those gaps in the workforce where perhaps think immigrants could help us. Um, I don't think that those would be fulfilled or they won't be fulfilled with uh, families and individuals who don't have a trauma, induced trauma on them, like as they're coming there to support us. Thank you, Christine. And Edwin, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Christine. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, this whole episode of immigration, I've actually taken a lot of thought and, and went through a lot of process of trying to understand what the law is based on. And we look at immigration law, it's based on the following principles. It's reunification of families, admitting immigrants with skilled, valuable uh, labor that's valuable to the U.S. economy. Back to what Jim was talking about, you know, he's, he's, he's seen it firsthand in the uh, manufacturer sector, you know, with the uh, valuable skills that come from other places. And also protecting refugees and promoting diversity. You know, there's a place for immigration in this country, and I think there's a right way to do it. I think today we don't do it a right way, and there's probably a better, better process of bringing people into the country and making them legal versus, you know, today we have 675,000 visas that are issued each year. So that's, that's our max. However, there's 1.2 million people that come to this country every year. So almost half of them are illegal. And if we're only allowing 675,000 to become permanent people every year, we'll never catch up and we'll always have so many illegal immigrants in this country that are basically taking some of the resources of the people that are legal citizens here. So we have to figure out a way to make these people, make immigrants legal through a process in which we all can uh, be comfortable with and, and, and appreciate. You know, if uh, today we've got 44 million immigrants living in this country, that's 13% of the U.S. population. We've got 328 million people in this country. 13.7%, that's a huge number. When you think about how big that number is, there's only, uh, what, 41 million African-American people in the U.S. And that's based on the 2019 census. So our immigrants in this country outnumber the African-American people that are citizens in this country. Today, people non-color, 235 million people. And if you think about what, Jim said earlier, we're all immigrants of some kind. I mean, if you look at the black population in this country, ancestors were forced immigrants of this country. So uh, one way or another, we're all immigrants. And we just have to figure out a better way to go about incorporating people that are not from this country into becoming citizens of this country. That's all. Thank you, Edwin and Kevin. If you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. Thanks, Margo. I'm gonna take a different approach. I had the pleasures to visit the Statue of Liberty on a vacation. 
And on that trip, I read the famous 1883 sonnet by Emery Lazarus, The New Classic. This sonnet has been seen and read more visibly than ever before, especially line 10 and 11, which states, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of these tearing shores. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. James Coney tweeted line 10 and 11 and added this, this country's greatest and true genius lies in its diversity. My research has led me to this summary. The poem compares the Statue of Liberty to the ancient Greece Colossus of Rome, representing this new Colossus as a patroness of immigrants rather than the symbol of military might. The statue's role and the poem's hopeful, uniconic tone offers an idealistic vision of the American's roles on the world stage as a welcomer and protector of immigrants. Once again, she commands the ancient nation to send her those who have been exiled and battered by the storms of misfortune. She beckons these immigrants towards her with a torch, which metaphorically illuminates the way, entryway to America and all those opportunities it offers. This is what I believe in and is what I'm willing to fight for. Some this sees as a, as a creole, a curse, or both, or neither. I see this as both. What are the restrictions? One of the major issues with immigration restrictions is the two branches of government, the legislative and executive branches, not working together, creating a meaningful law supporting immigration. Congress has not made any new laws in the, in the past two decades, but the executive branches have created hundreds and hundreds of executive actions, which has tied up our court systems, resources, our tax dollars doing so. This is not a Democratic or Republican issue. It has become an American problem and concerning issues dividing our countries versus pulling us together. For example, the Trump administration has set an unprecedented pace of executive actions on immigrants. In the four years, he has completed 472 executive actions affecting the U.S. immigration policies. These actions were often carried out in the name of protecting the U.S. nation's security and protecting the economy's advancement on U.S. workers. What are we doing about this? We need to educate ourselves and hold our government accountable for a meaningful law around immigrations. We need to make sure that this country never forgets how it was created, bad or good, but the premise around give me your tired, your poor, and your huddled masses yearning to be free. No, this is not a race issue. We need to establish strong but fair policies to uphold our matter where we stand politically or not. We need to make sure the people all over this world takes into account what it means to be a U.S. immigrant in the U.S. Poor, rich, Salem psychers are seeking the American dream as well as what it takes to become a U.S. citizen. How does this impact our economy? Our economy is based on immigrants from individuals working on farms, service industries, hospitals, inventors, high tech, or just wanting to be a family member. Right now, the U.S. is founded on a long-standing tradition of encouraging people seeking a better life to live everywhere they know to contribute to the U.S. And today, it saw the lowest population growth on decades since the 1930s. So with this balance of immigrants coming to the U.S., what has impacted our economy growth in a positive manner? Thank you, Kevin. And Mace, if you'd like to go ahead and give us your thoughts on today's questions. That was a lot to take in. Um obviously I really appreciate everyone giving their point of view and it's um like I said uh, I'm an immigrant as well so having come from Iraq I was born in Iraq um, we immigrated my family and I in 1995 so there's um, having experienced the process itself I I'm very grateful for the opportunities it gave me and my family most 
all of them are teachers and or uh, entrepreneurs. So let's just, let me paint a different picture of what immigration can do. Okay, so um, obviously I work in the restrictions as um, prior to Trump, most politicians, whether Republican or Democratic, were lenient um, and or attempted to put in policies that strengthened the immigration um, program. Uh, denial rates were always relatively low. There was a range depending on whether it was a Republican or Democratic candidate, but it always stayed within 5%. Under Trump's administration, immigration became a very, very hot topic. Not taking into account um, family-based, which you guys know I don't have that much experience in family-based immigration, but just employment-based immigration, if you filed, if a, a company wanted to bring in or hire a temporary worker to do coding, which obviously I think we all know social media technology is a hot um, industry, not a lot of not a lot of Americans have a STEM degree, so a lot of that work is outsourced. Um, nursing, farming, there's so many other industries. I primarily focused on the tech industry. H-1Bs were denied up to 24% under his administration. He also attempted to end the diversity visa programming, uh, which allowed people from that had um, from essentially uh, countries with low U.S. immigration to apply for permanent residency and come into the U.S. as a permanent resident. Um, he affected F-1 students. So an F-1 visa is um, somebody who applies to come to a U.S. school, get a U.S. education. It's usually paid for by the country that they're from. Um, a lot of international students were affected under his administration as well. Um, so because of these programs, oh, because of these policies, it affected uh, depending on the programs in the U.S. And they began to look at other options, whether it's obviously COVID allowed them to do remote. So country people can send them back. Country, companies could send employees back uh, and they could work from home. They looked at other countries like they began sending employees to Canada, to um, Europe. But those policies have a tremendous effect on our economy. Before I can have even set the, the stage on how immigration benefits our economy, there's a few things. Number one, the Immigration Act was established in 1924. So bear in mind that prior to that, immigrants were also flooding the US, if that's the term we wanna use to, um, to describe what's happening in the Southern border. Eight million, immigrants came through Ellis Island prior to 1924. Right now, what's happening in the border, CBP, the Custom Border Patrol, uh, interacts with about 1.6 million immigrants or undocumented immigrants or people trying to cross the border. Um, the U.S. population is 329 million. So if, if, Immigrants make up a small population, but the benefit that we get from them is exponential. You have to keep in mind, what is the 
the harm that is going to come from us passing restrictive immigration versus the benefit if the risk is so small in relation to the greater population, the, the better good of America. Okay, so what are we doing about that? Uh, one of the questions you guys asked is what are we doing about these um, policies? Again, it's based off administration. So Biden administration came in, he's very pro-immigration. The denial rates dropped to about 4% under him. Um, he's he He has, consistently said that he will um, refine the immigration process, especially under unemployment, uh, under the employment sector. So there's different avenues for which companies could expedite the process. Um, people, not only could the primary person who's coming in to work for said company uh, will be allowed to work. His spouse and or her spouse will have options to also work. Um, uh, he'll have authorization to work. Um, and I can throw in a litany of percentages, but immigrate uh, immigrants make up seven, 16% of the labor force. 18% of them are small business owners. 46% of them work in white collar jobs. And, uh, they always fill in the gaps for the labor shortage so that our economy does not crumble. That's it. Thank you, Mace. And moving into our open discussion, I do want to provide a little questions just to get you guys thinking. Everyone has mentioned that laws need to be changed on how America treats immigrants and immigration. How would you expect laws to change? And do you think this would affect a specific group more than another group, say immigrants coming from Middle East countries versus immigrants coming through the southern border? I can start asking that. I think it once again, this, the law should be colorblind. Once we start getting into this piece, we're going to come back there. And once again, we're going to be focusing on like, once again, when we're talking about the Middle East, we're, we're labeling them as terrorists. But when on the border, we're sitting there labeling them as thieves, murderers, and drug dealers. So once again, if you really look at some of the impact across, when it comes to crime, crime does not have a color, okay? Or what the things that we look at, we have to look at our strong policies and governance as a whole, as an immigrant company country. So if we're going to identify just one sector, to me, that's that's going back to, once again, legalized slavery back in the days of bringing slaves over. And sometimes I see that as being whatever the person is sitting on, if they want to talk about you know, whatever rhetoric they want to hold on trying to grab voters. So that's my take. I just have a quick question to those who are opposed to immigration. A, a, a lot of people, especially in the media, say undocumented immigrants. Um, for those who are opposed to immigration or want a strict immigration policy, when I say undocumented immigrant, what does that mean to you? It's automatically unconscious bias. You're talking about Hispanic and Latino, but I'm just saying right, that's right. A, that's the first thing that comes to undocumented right. workers are coming over here, taking my jobs and whatnot. That's how the unconscious bias what I'm seeing. So that's the reason I'm saying it should not have a face when you're talking about immigration policies. But the first thing you come back is because it's in the news, it's pounded on those individuals, and the first thing is that what they see is, especially living in California, I see a Hispanic Latino person. Is he documented or not? Is he on a green card or did he just jump across the, you know, real Grande? That's sometimes a premise of how we talk in our rhetoric behind this. But when we look at it, undocumented comes from the north border. It comes from airplanes. It comes from all over the areas coming into the U.S. That's what I think. But I'm not, you know, once again, that's just my interpretations. But, you know, I want to hear my other well, counterparts. And there's 
and there's some judgment in there too. I mean, we used to call it illegal immigration, illegal immigrants, which is <laughs> why that why that would be politically incorrect continues to puzzle me because they are people breaking the law. Um, the way I take it is they're still people. They're still worthy of respect, but they have broken our laws and they should have consequences for that. May is you came here legally. I mean, you know, for someone like you who followed the rules and, and did things the correct way, um, you know, I, I would think you're that contrast of saying, you know, this is this is the benefit of the legal way we bring people into the country and and do exactly what you said, which is bolster our our own skill set and our uh, you know enliven our economy, our culture, everything. That's one of the beauties of America. The problem I have when when the media uses undocumented is it's. Uh, associating it with only those in the border. And that's not true. Undocumented could be, and half of them also come from Europe where they're white people and they overstayed their welcome. That technically means they're undocumented. They're not, they, they have broken the law, but there's a lot more leeway or you wouldn't automatically assume if you see somebody from Europe who's here as an immigrant who overstayed their welcome, there's no association that they're undocumented. Whereas when I talk to people about undocumented, they automatically assume it's just the south of the border, which is not right. true. Half of the undocumented percentage in America are also people from Europe. It's people who came here to work and they just did not decided not to renew their paperwork. So technically they're undocumented. They've broken the law as well. But again, the media tends to hype up a certain group of people or they tend to take a group um, like the South of the border and they amplify it to make it seem like it's only Hispanics and or people from the Southern uh, geographically that are undocumented, which is not true at all. That is the biggest misconception that I think is it's harmful because there could be truly <laughs> Hispanics and or people from the South that are documented, that are here legitimately, but that are also affected because socially we believe that it's only they who would be undocumented. Sorry. Hey, Mace, can you answer the question too? Because you just hit on a good point because Jim, I want to talk to your point about people who are coming the right way. Okay. So when I'm living in California, I have the the bridge of the Greenfield and as well as Silicon Valley. So there's a difference per se because I've been or a doctor or a lawyer that's coming from other countries. They have sometimes the money and the well-being. So I'm looking at supply and demand. There is a demand for those people who will get sponsorships and follow the, the process. But then we have when we're going to focus on the border, people are coming over here, but no one holds the individuals accountable for employing those individuals who came illegally. So when I'm talking about from that standpoint, isn't once again that narrative on which area you want to talk on your platform? Am I talking about the programmers and the doctors, or am I talking to migrant workers who are actually dealing with the farms or, or service industries or things that we're saying, what you're saying, they're taking away from workers or having problems in the manufacturing world? So I think it collectively as a whole, we cannot isolate certain areas based on our needs or how we deem necessary of following the laws. So Maze, I'd like to hear your point on that because I'm living in Silicon Valley, and I know for people got over here who are programmers who are not following the ways, or individuals who've gone to school, and once their visa's up for school, they're supposed to go back, but they're getting now a job that actually, you know, could take away from American workers, 
Okay, so I don't know. I think there's a whole piece of this, but but you don't hear about you know Silicon Valley workers getting deported versus individuals that you know are you know from ISIS hitting the farms. Are they hitting the Silicon Valley partners? I don't know. But I'm just right. thinking there's a different perception on what we deem necessary. So do you see that, Mace, when we're talking about on those points that Jim's talking about? People are following the process and the supply and demand who's actually picking, I'm just using, you know, crops or whatnot or service industries. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, even in employment based, there are companies that absolutely abuse the system that don't pay people the right wage. So that lowers the wage for a certain regional area. But that doesn't mean that there aren't policies and procedures in place um to attempt to hire us workers whether or not that company's shady and tries to evade or whether or not there's also no us workers the arguments could be skewed either way we don't invest in education we don't um we not a lot of people take stem degrees seriously so we don't have a lot of people who are going to school for science technology engineering and math so a lot of these companies are outsourcing that to primarily China or India for that, for people who are good at coding. And then on the flip side, there are companies who say, well, I don't want to pay a lot of money for a U.S. worker who has bargaining power. So I'll get somebody who doesn't have as much bargaining power and I'll pay them less. And they can't, what are they going to do? They're, they're not here. As, they don't have as much, you know, when, somebody here who's here on a temporary visa, they don't have as much bargaining power as say a U.S. citizen, whether it's through the media, whether it's through just being able to unionize. So, you know, companies obviously may abuse that. And I mean, that, that is, I have seen that. That's not, not, that's not to say that these things don't exist. It's just as a society, we have to decide whether the benefits outweigh the negatives does that make sense yeah and actually i want to go back to margo's starter question there around the laws and you said we're all in favor of changing them. i never said that i said i'm willing to entertain that but for me what we need to be doing is going back to the laws as they were passed and seeing how those work you know maze you talked about all the actions trump took but let's face facts some of that was a backlash to obama's daca program where he extra legally you know, uh, admitted 800,000 immigrants. A and so there's fault on both sides. Y you're correct. There's been all these extra legislative actions that don't exist in the laws. And for me, the starter should be, let's get rid of all that. Let's go back to the laws as the uh, US Congress passed them, start enforcing them appropriately, which, as I said, is not occurring today. We have an administration because they see the immigrants coming across as supporting their party throwing the border open. And that's unbelievable to me. I can't believe there isn't a greater outswell against that. So let's go back to the laws as they were passed. Let's enforce them. And then let's, to your point, Mays, have that conversation. To your point, Kevin, look at the situations it creates. You know, you talked about Silicon Valley, absolutely correct. There's also the Central Valley where it's that whole other swath of immigrants right. who, uh, as I hear, our farms couldn't run without. That right. could well be the case, but if that's the case, then let's change the laws appropriately. And Jim, you hit it right there, you said the laws. See, what you're facing about, we're talking about administrative who actually had the executive power to write those actions. And when they go to court, guess what happens? They are not held against 
the law that is written. So that's where I'm talking about the issue is, you know, whoever sits in that office has the executive power to write stuff. But when it has to come to court, the court says that is not constitutional because it's not in the law. So that's where it says the executive and the legislative branch has to hold true to the laws versus I'm getting in here. And for whatever my unbiased opinions about what is wrong or right, because I can sit there and you said you got 472 law um, uh, executive orders that trumped it. Prior to that, if you look at Obama's actions, he deported more than Trump did. So a lot of the pieces, it's the rhetoric, it comes back of who holds that office versus who should be having the rights to write the laws to enforce. And that's where we're having problems right now. And right now, Mays is facing with those issues following the laws, but then you get the executive orders, you get all this other stuff, and now we're tying up that resources. So I'd rather tie up the resources to really fix issues of people coming over here for a better way of life versus trying to put them back because those are what that president who sits in that office is dictating what's the place. So that's really my conversation. And I wish I want to hear from Christine and Edwin. And yeah, so that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, when this has me thinking about all kinds of stuff, naturally, the when we think about going back to the laws, I guess, which laws are we going to be going back to and which policies are we going back to? Because, and then that's where I think it's determined by the administration. Because if we, um, what's that called? The public public charge policy. I think that last year that by that that Trump um, almost like reinstated, if I understand it correctly, because it's based off of a policy that was put into place in the 1880s to block Chinese immigrants, to decrease the number of Chinese immigrants, because of this, they referred to or they would be endangering good order here in the U.S. And that's something that Trump decided to put in play again. And then Biden switched it last year. I guess I'm ref I'm curious, which laws is it that we're going to be going back to? Do some of these older laws instigate um, discrimination? And we have these social biases, these racial biases that are um, maybe not written into the law directly, but let's let's just be you know, how we can interpret them and we can understand exactly what they're trying to say. We can read between the lines. So how is there um, a fair way and who deems what is fair when it comes to immigration? I don't have an answer and I'm not saying that any of us do and it's all going to be open to interpretation of some sort. But which which laws and which policies is it that some of you are referring that we go back to? Well, Christina, I want to leave this to the lawyers, but the ones I've looked at, because we had the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, we had the Refuse Act of 1980, we have the Cold War era quota for the Cuban immigrants, and then we have the U.S. grown economy, military's presence in Asia, and, and so a lot of things are current based, and I think a lot of that stuff needs to have the lawyers and sit there, because every decade we come back there, when we have a surge of problems, they write a law versus collectively getting together and saying, what do we need to stand by and hold true? But what we do is we wishy-washy back and forth because maybe the U.S. has a present in a certain country. And so that impacts those individuals. So I think it's, like you said, look at the laws. It's a lot of stuff's on the books and we never go back to those laws. And then all of a sudden, someone who gets smart brushes off some of those old laws and say, oh, it's in the system. So now let me use it for what it, the other intent. From, from that standpoint. So I'm, I'm going to leave that up to Mace, but I think honestly, that's where we have to have the executive and the, and the legislative branch get together and really come to together and, and look at true meaningful laws. Well, I agree. I think all the laws need to be looked at, but I think until we 
until we look at them, we have to enforce the laws we have. So if we only allow 675,000 immigrants to become legal, uh, what they call them, legal, uh, lawful permanent residents every year, then that's the number we should stick to until we figure out a better process. Because if you look at the amount of people coming here, over 1.3 million people every year, and they're not going through a legal process and not becoming lawful permanent residents, well, you know, you can't put 14 people in a seven passenger van. You know, it's, 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 it's what we do because we bring a lot of, we bring all the people in, eats up a lot of resources. So if we are exceeding our ceiling that we allow every year, we never catch up. So we, we are just depleting our resources, trying to, uh, trying to keep up and we'll never, we'll never keep up. We'll never catch up. So we've got to figure out how to go back to those original laws and enforce them. And again, Kevin, I'm with you. Which law do we go to? You know, the, the okay, 1965 Lyndon B. Johnson, he overturned the 1924 law, right? So I get it. We figure out which one we go back to. We reinforce what we need to do. However, we have to start somewhere. We need to start where that law starts and finishes today and figure out how to make the adjustments. And, you know, we need to look at how, how, how we approach it because today, if you are a spouse, a child, a parent of a U.S. citizen, and you're an immigrant, there's no limits on how many people come here. Yeah, but you know, here's a here's a so whole you can exceed the 675,000. You can also exceed the 675,000 by refugees because the president meets with Congress every year to de determine how many refugees he allows in the country. Okay. So there's so many different rules around what we all think is right and wrong. But until we go back to the original law and say let's enforce it and let's improve, I think we are, uh, we're fighting a losing battle. Well, we're I mean, also- The borders are open and there's no, no, there's really no, there, there's no repercussion for today. So we are, we are sitting here and we're beating up all the politicians over all this, but we really need to look at our, look at the people that are in power today, make sure we're enforcing laws that are there to begin with. If we need to make changes, that's what the voting policy is all about. And so we go out and we look at this and, whatever changes we need to make, we need to make some educated decisions based on what immigrants do for this country. And I'm not talking black, white, whatever. Immigrant, immigrants are from everywhere. It's not, it's not a racial thing, but it has been only due to the fact that we have, we have built ceilings for the maximum amount of people that we allow from different countries. And that's in part of the American Immigration Council. We only allow so many people from so many countries but yet we also have workarounds by uh, people that are married to U.S. citizens and spouses and children and parents and all that. So uh, we've got to figure out what laws work and which don't. Right. And one, one last thing, people that are here that are uh, valuable employees and their visas run out and they overstay the welcome, guess what? We have, we have laws in place to allow them to stay here. It's called an adjustment status. They can file for that. And they, I know Mace knows, I know what I'm talking about. They can file for adjustment status and become permanent residents of this country. Yeah, I, I just want to really quickly touch on that race point. You know, Christine brought it up about reading between the lines. There have been um, elements of racial animus throughout the immigration laws. And, you know, it's obviously something we have to grapple with, but that's nothing new. I mean, my grandparents coming from Ireland suffered some of the worst racism you can imagine, believe it or not. Irish need not apply signs. 
that kind of thing. They moved to Oregon from Chicago for that very reason. So certainly something you want to keep in mind, but, you know, again, go back to the text of the laws as they exist today, and then let's have those discussions about what's right. All righty. Well, anyone else? Closing down. Well, I, like you said, this is where everyone was talking about the size of the bus. I think the bus needs to get bigger and understanding what that means. Because right now we're facing demand, you know, supply and demand. Right now, the U.S. does not have enough people to fill the needed jobs in certain areas. And that we may talk about the STEM organization as well as I haven't seen too many people, especially when I drive around here in California. We're talking about you know using the farms or the are the same times we're talking about the service industries you know who are filling those roles of those pieces and those are immigrants so as we look at it from the standpoint the bus needs to be built bigger and we have to evolve our laws and legislations to grow for the times but when we're talking about 1965 on some of the laws come on you know let's get let's get real those are old, outdated laws that need to be revamped, for, especially in today's economy, because the population of the U.S. is declining, and the immigration law, you know, immigration populace is growing. So it's sort of balancing those out. That's how I kind of see it. So that one, I think the bus needs to have now 14 passengers versus seven. And uh, you know what? One question for Mace: What do you feel? How do you feel about birthright citizenship? I don't have an issue with it. Um, I mean, again, for me. I look at the bigger picture and I don't, I don't know what the issue is with people that are against immigration. And Edwin, in all honesty, I know that you mentioned somebody who's here, they overstayed their welcome. They can adjust their status. I swear it is not that easy. Like it's it, you, the way you said it makes it sound easy, but it's not, it depends on whether or not they have a visa that's available to them. They have to show maintenance of status. So they have to show in the petition or in the application that they have literally been here from the first time they were allowed to, they were admitted to um, the time that they're adjusting status. That includes paperwork showing that they did not overstay their welcome. So if they overstayed their welcome, that is very problematic and they won't be able to adjust their status unless, I, I don't know, if there's a change in the law or something that, but it, it, to say that they could just easily adjust their status is just, that's not factually true. Every single country has a limit on the number of visas. I think somebody mentioned that. Um, and it depends on the category and it depends on like essentially the basis at which you're trying to become a lawful permanent resident. You've got people in, um, in Iraq and Afghanistan that help the U.S. military fight terrorist groups. They are also allowed for the fact that they're scared that they help the U.S. military, that if they stay back home, they will get killed. So there's so many different avenues and there's immigration is such a nuanced topic that for anybody, including the media to make a blanket statement about like, oh, undocumented immigrants. Oh, you know, we have, we're overthrowing our, or even the fact that I know, Jim, I've heard this from so many people. Well, you know, the democratic party wants to bring in all these immigrants so that they'll vote. Like more than half of my family, all immigrants voted Republican. So the notion- I, I didn't that, say it was effective. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this, I, this, again, the, this idea that, oh, if you're, you know, most immigrants fear socialism. So what's the good way <laughs> to scare immigrants? Tell them Democrats are trying to make your country socialist. They'll immediately run through the roof and they'll be like, I'm pro-Trump, I'm pro-Bush, I'm pro-Whomever right. because 
they experience that back home. They know what it's like to live under a fear of government. And it's, I, I've heard so many immigrants be like, yeah, I'm glad my family and I are here, but I don't want anybody else from Iraq or said country to come in here. So um, it's very complex. It's very, there's, there's parts of it that are great, but all of it overall benefits the country. I swear, I don't think there's, so many of them become entrepreneurs, even if they depend on the country a little bit, like they may use social programs in the beginning. Most of them are entrepreneurs. They fill in gaps where we need them. Right now, nursing is at a shortage. Literally, women, uh, nurses are leaving the hospitals because of COVID, because of whatever reason. If a per certain part of our country crumbles, what are we going to do? We need people to fill that void. And the best people are those who come from war torn and or want a taste of the American dream. Awesome. You, you touched on a couple of points and you made, and you made the point that, that it's complex, um, but it's also important to talk about abuse. And so we talk about uh, birthright citizenship and right now Congress just heard testimony not too long ago that two thirds of births in Los Angeles public hospitals and more than half of births in that city have been to mothers who are here illegally, 10% of births across the nation. Um, and so I, you know, I'm in favor of allowing people who got here legally then to have their children become citizens. But when people break the laws to get here, you know, it's hard not to see that as abuse when then their kids uh, automatically become citizens. Similarly, you, you alluded to the refugee status. And again, absolutely, you know, the people who are here truly fleeing for their lives, I, I fully support. But then let's also face facts. There are people who weren't, you know, we flew all these supposed refugees from Afghanistan. Not that I wish anyone to be in Afghanistan these days, but they weren't vetted, you know, tens of thousands of people that we flew here. Who are they? They could be terrorists. I don't know. I'm not saying everyone from Afghanistan is a terrorist, but it only takes a few to cause a big problem, right? And so we've got to watch out for that abuse of our uh, our, our systems as well. But when, when do you start when you crossing with faith and, and what the true essence of what that program is? And I like Ramesh talked about earlier, we're we're spending 90% of our time on 2% of the problems. And I don't know how that's going to be resolved. But once again, it's the faith that this country has been based upon. And if we start doing that, we're, you're, you're talking about other issues. And that's where we're getting that separation of the, the, the fear mongering and the unknown and whatnot. So to me, it's like, I'd rather look side on the other side versus always looking at the negative of all these pieces. So I don't have the answer for it. But Jim, I, like I said, when I'm looking at that Statue of Liberty, I'm looking at that good faith that things are going to happen for a purpose and a reason not to sit back here and worry about, I need to close the boards because, oh my God, I'm, I've just let in a terrorist. Well, if they're going to come in, they're going to come in. I'm just curious, what are the current consequences, I guess, of someone who, if the parent is illegal and they have a child here, then I get it, they become a legal U.S. citizen if the child is born here. Um, but say this illegal immigrant is here, the, the further, is illegal. Is that any different if they cross the border illegally or if their visa expired and they become an illegal person, then what it, does that person have a, a greater chance or a lesser chance or should they be deported or sent back somewhere else, even though their child is now a legal US citizen? And is it looked at differently based on how the illegal immigrant is got here? Well, I, I think socially, we tend to perceive 
illegal immigrants. I think, as Kevin mentioned earlier, that they are Hispanic from the border and stuff. We never think that um, a European or somebody from even the Middle East or Africa or whatnot who overstayed their visa is also illegal. And there are, there are, they can go to court. They, they're, they're confined to what kind of work they can do. There's a lot of administrative policies in place to like make sure that they have to show like they could be barred if they don't provide explanation as to why they overstayed their visa. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I think socially we perceive them as two different. We don't think that there could be people here that were here legally that overstayed as being undocumented. I think socially we always perceive them to be people who are like crossing over the border and trying to have babies in California. Um, so, so I actually have experienced um, that situation of a friend from Nigeria who was working with me who was that close to getting deported. Um, and then it, this gets into that whole conversation of resources too, because then the company we were both working for went to bat for him, got an extension on his visa, and God bless him, he's a, a US citizen today. And uh, thank God for that. So yeah, you know, people like that do get deported. Uh, yeah. To Mace's point, you know, it's kind of out of the public eye and out of the, um, common narrative but it happens um i'm with with you know, jim you're, you're going to point is if i have the privilege once again we got to look at the privileged and sometimes a privilege is the one who gets that extra or someone that they know or connect to you know and that power and then how you feel that someone comes in follow the process and did all this and all of a sudden they hear the rhetoric of an individuals who are not doing that so this is where you're talking about oh you know maze was talking about you know being socialist you know and in Miami, when you're talking to the Cubans, then you're talking about some of the individuals from, you know, Central uh, America, you know, all these things in those those realms and because of how people see things and how they vote. And so I, I don't have the answer for this, but this is really, and it's like what number three on one of the issues that we're facing, it's not the top one, but it's the one that just keeps nagging you like a, a fly or something. But we, we keep seeing it until someone takes a hold of it and change that rhetoric and drives that piece. All right, thank you everyone for our open discussion. And now to go over to our roundtable and do our closing statements. Jim, if you'll go ahead and start us out. Yep, thank you, Margo. Thanks all, great discussion. Um, yeah, I learned a few things. I, I really am glad to hear Mesa's perspective, uh, both from the legal side and from her experience as an immigrant. Um, it only makes me feel more like um, what I brought in, which is I'm absolutely in favor of immigration. I think it's one of the great strengths of America is that uh, the vibrancy of this country, the innovation of this country uh, in part comes from that, from that fresh infusion of uh, new thinking over the ages. But again, I also think that for very good reasons, it has to be controlled. Um, we didn't really touch on the impact to communities and Mace made the point that the numbers coming in are quite small, that's true. The trouble is they can become concentrated in particular areas. And I witnessed that firsthand in central Wisconsin back uh, a couple decades ago with a particular group of immigrants that were all settled in rural communities in central Wisconsin. And, you know, I'm sure there was some element of racial tension there as well, but it can't be argued that there was a big impact to the resources of those communities and to uh, 
you know, the way they ran their affairs. And it wasn't necessarily favored by a majority of the people in those communities to do that. And so that's where you get a lot of this animus is you have things like that where uh, decisions are made there. We touched on the extra legal aspect of some of this that's going on and it causes that ill will. Uh, I agree with several people who, who said the race thing shouldn't be part of it. And, you know, Mace made that great point of um, <laughs> there are plenty of Europeans over here who overstay their, their visas. And so um, the responsible thing, again, I'm going to go right back to it, is going back to the laws as written, um, enforcing the laws, which, as I've said, are not being done on the southern border today, and um, having that public debate in a rational way uh, about what the laws need to look like going forward. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. And Christine, if you'll go ahead and give us your closing statements for today. Sure thing. Thanks, Margo. And thanks so much, Mace, for joining us and supporting this vision. Um, your, your depth of experience and knowledge are just so appreciated here. Um, so I can't thank you enough. You really brought a lot to the conversation. Um, so in closing, absolutely important in support of immigration and I think I heard Jim mention something about this, this beautiful infusion of fresh and innovative ideas that can come with immigration. I think we need to take that concept to our laws surrounding immigration. What fresh and new innovative perspectives can we, can we go at that from? Yes, we have a long history of laws that um, have uh, racist undertones to it and policing of, um, which immigrants are allowed um, based on if they were uh, in, going to endanger the good order <laughs> quote of our nation. And I think that we've had plenty of experience to see what could work and maybe um, could not work. And we need to, the media just needs to get their act together and not highlight these stories that are, um, not that are just such a small portion of what immigration could look like in the United States and does look like in the United States. I also think that we need to keep families um, in mind and what sort of trauma support these folks could benefit from and our resources are here for a reason and that they should have access to them too, especially if we are going to be um, in a sense relying on immigrants help what I think I heard someone say, fill in the gaps, the the employment gaps, um, and to really bring our country, um, bring our country around. I think then we need to offer them resources to be mentally stable and healthy. Thank you, Christine. And Edwin, if you'll go ahead and give us your closing statement for today. Absolutely. So I think uh, Jim's made some great points. Christine's made some great points, Kevin, as well as Mace. And Mace, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it because you know, this whole immigration thing is very current and it's near and dear to a lot of people's heart understanding that there's avenues for people to become legalized citizens in this country. And I think we have to go back to the original laws and, and just start enforcing before we can make any changes, because right now I think we are kind of all over the place with with uh, uh, taking people down different avenues that's most convenient for making people citizens in this country. And I think there's uh, probably some disproportionate amount of people that, you know, uh, white collar workers versus agricultural workers and the, the some of the resources they've access to to become citizens of this country. And I think there's, 
you know, a lot of the differences that can be just overturned if we can communicate and educate. And I think what you've done for us today, especially me, share with me some of the background you've had regarding immigration. So back to whether or not immigrants are good for this country. Absolutely, because we're all immigrants of this country at one point. So I think we can look at that and understand, you know, start admitting more immigrants to this country to have skills that are valuable to the U.S. economy. And I think that's I think that's what we've done for the most part. However, it's more twofold than that because people come here and become uh, formally educated and, and, and can provide some things after they achieve the education here rather than go back to their native country. They can, you know, share those skills here. And I think uh, just through simple communication and education and challenging the uh, uh, challenging the White House as far as immigration laws is the best thing we could do if we don't agree. That's all I have. Thank you, Edwin. And Kevin, if you'll go ahead and give us your closing statement. Yeah, thanks, Margo. I want to, once again, thank you so much for enlightening me, because this is one of the topics I'm very passionate about. And like you said, my counterparts here, thank you for sharing. I think when we're talking about laws, we need to really look at the old laws versus the new laws, because today we're not impacting. And when we're looking at it, it's not impacting the underrepresented when we're talking about a lot of pieces. And there's three parts I like to say, because our lawmaker, lawmakers are not a lot of the faces that we have in today. And so trying to make laws for individuals who have never gone through this process, it's to me is it's lacking. And when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, sometimes our laws do not look at the diversity and inclusion of what this country is. It's always about how I represent my community or how I view things in my lens versus, but Congress is changing. But then when you're talking about when Congress is changing, we're still having people trying to now take apart those individuals who sit on that seat and represents the people that are different. And I think we need to really look at how those old laws in, impact us and how things are um, being done today. And one of the things I wanna share a quote by Nelson Mandela says, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And right now, sometimes I don't think that's the fact because we don't educate ourselves. We don't look at inclusion. We do not look at diversity to impact. So I think moving forward, our laws need to be changed. It should be make better for those who are underrepresented. So Mays, thanks for shedding the lights on the, the law and how we need to do, but at this group, we need to become better educated in the process. Thanks. Thank you, Kevin and Mace. If you'll go ahead and give us your closing statement for today. This has been such a pleasure. It has been great hearing people's points of views. I think it's um, it really is eye-opening how important it is that people know the facts rather than just a generalized headline from a news article that makes them think um, one thing is true when it's truly not. And um, honestly, I'm a, a big promote pro proponent of immigration. I, I completely understand that, like Jim mentioned, there's unfortunately some of the negative effects are some communities will lose resources and or deal with racial tension if you've got an influx of immigrants going to some communities. But like I, I approach every single policy for the U.S., I look at the bigger picture and we benefit so much from immigration. And uh, because of the benefit that our country gets from immigration, I tend to be very uh, supportive of policies that allow people to come in. People that come in want a better life. They want to work hard so that 
they, their wives, their husbands, their kids can have things that they didn't have. My family went through that. They did not want to stay in a war-torn country. They wanted their kids to have better lives. And I'm an attorney because of that. So I have to assume that every immigrant that is crossing that border is not doing it because they want to upset you know, the, 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 the white or the black or the Asian Americans of the country. They're doing it because they want to provide better for their lives. So because of that, I will always support their ability to come in. But it's been a pleasure. You guys have been awesome. This has been so much fun. Absolutely. So much fun. Christine, thank you so much for considering me. This is awesome. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in on whatever platform you've chosen to join us on. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts to receive notifications when we release new content.